0: I invite you to take your copy of scripture and turn to the gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 7, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 to 23 this morning, verses 1 to 23. And so I will begin reading for us in Mark chapter 7, verse 1, and uh, if you didn't bring your Bible this morning, you should find one in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you, Uh, and you can pull that out. And uh, you'll find it on page 842 and 843, uh, our passage for this morning. So, Mark chapter 7, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the courage and boldness and clarity of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that as we consider his words this morning, that you would convict our own hearts, that you would show us truth, and Lord, that you would reassure us with the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that you would take this word now. And, Lord, we pray that you would bury it deep in our hearts and that you would change our hearts for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So we've been studying uh, the life of Jesus uh, by walking through the gospel of Mark. And we've been walking through verse by verse. And now we come to this account in which Jesus is having a conflict with the religious leaders. Now, it's been some time since we've seen the religious leaders in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus had some conflict with them back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But it's been some time since we've encountered them. But now again, here Jesus is in a conflict, a disagreement with the religious leaders. And this is really a great passage to study because it reveals to us what it was at the heart of the disagreement between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, The crux of the controversy here between Jesus and the religious leaders is how one can be made right or how one can be made clean before God. Let me just say initially as we start to get into our passage here is that at one level or another, all of us are seeking to be made right, to be made clean, to be made acceptable. In fact, it's an aching that we have in all of our hearts, Uh, we realize that in various ways we come up short, that we are deficient, that we're not all that we should be or were created to be. And so all of us at one level or another are seeking to be made right or acceptable or clean, and people pursue this in different ways. Some people seek to prove themselves through religion, so they try to keep all the rules And then they feel like they'll be acceptable, they'll be right. Some try to do this through work. And they determine to be successful. And if they're successful, then they'll prove themselves. Then they'll be acceptable before God and before others. Some seek to do so through physical appearance. Uh, The idea is, well, if I'm beautiful or I'm buff, then I'm somebody. Uh, Some try to do this through... um, social connections, so they might see their value measured by how many Facebook friends they have, or uh, how many people know them and speak well of them. And listen, others seek to do this through ministry, through Christian ministry, right? If I'm successful in ministry, if people validate me in ministry, then I'm validated before God and others. You see, in, in various ways, we all do this. But Jesus tells us here in this passage that there is another way. What I want us to see from our text this morning is that Jesus points us to the Scriptures to show us what it means to be made clean and to be made right before God. There's three points I want us to see in our passage. This will be the outline of the sermon this morning. First of all, we'll see that Jesus exposes empty tradition Secondly, we'll see Jesus honors the Word of God. And then third, we'll see that Jesus reveals the true path to being clean before God. So Jesus exposes empty tradition, He honors the Word of God, and He reveals the true path to being clean before God. First of all, Jesus exposes empty tradition. Look there in verses 1 to 4, and I'll read them for us again. Follow along in your Bibles, and it reads... Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, in our text here, what I want us to see is that initially... Jesus is addressing those who we might label as religiously conservative, okay? Those who are religiously conservative are particularly tempted to feel that they are made right before God because they are good at keeping the rules. Now, what is all this about washing that's being talked about here in the passage. Why is there all this conflict and controversy about washing? Well, in the Old Testament, giving this context now, in the Old Testament scriptures, God had commanded the priests to wash before they entered the tabernacle, okay? So before they entered into the tabernacle, the priests specifically, this is a command given specifically to the priests, they were to wash before entering the tabernacle. Now, the reason behind this was not hygiene, okay? So God was not concerned that they might catch a cold if they didn't wash their hands. The idea behind this was that the washing was to be a sign or a symbol that the God that they were coming before was a holy God. He was clean. He was pure. He was without blemish, without sin. And as they came to represent the people of God, that they were to come before God in such a way that they themselves were clean and pure, okay? Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had taken this practice that was commanded for the priest, they had generalized it for the population as a whole, and they had added upon it, or extrapolated out of it, literally hundreds of other regulations. Now, the religious leaders did this with any number of other commands in the Old Testament. They would take a command, and then they would study it, and then they'd think about it, and they would extrapolate out of it hundreds, literally hundreds, of other rules and regulations. And that's what they had done regarding this matter of washing. So, for example, in the Mishnah, uh, this was a religious tradition written by the elders uh, of that time. Uh, The religious leaders had recorded about 185 pages addressing laws of cleanliness. And about 35 of those pages, or about another 35 pages, addressing the washing of vessels and other utensils. Now, some of those regulations that they had come up with are actually referred to in our passage, right? So you see it here in verse 3. The people were not to eat unless they wash their hands. Verse 4, if they went to the marketplace to get some food and then they came back, they were not to eat unless they wash, the passage says. Some commentators believe there that actually it should be translated bathe, that they should take a bath before they eat. And then in verse 4, you see again, it makes reference to the fact that they had these rules and regulations regarding the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now listen, what we see here in our text is that religious folks have a tendency to do this. To create rules and regulations and stipulations and then feel justified because they keep their rules and their regulations that they make up because they keep their moral code. Well, this was a long time ago, and so you might think, ah, well, that doesn't really apply today. I mean, is anybody really doing this today? Does anybody wash their hands, you know, every time before they eat, because they think that'll make them holy and right before God? Well, I want to give you an example, and there's many examples I could give. I'll just give you one. And uh, I want to warn you this morning that if you are not particularly religious, uh, this is going to sound especially silly to you. But nonetheless, here it is. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, uh, in a book that he wrote, tells a story about a missionary family that was uh, overwhelmed, really, by uh, the legalism that they encountered with their colleagues on the missionary field and actually eventually returned home uh, in discouragement. And the issue, the matter at hand, was over peanut butter. Okay? Uh, there was a missionary family, and they had gone to a place to serve the Lord, and uh, they particularly liked peanut butter. But the place where they went, and if you've interacted with missionary families overseas, this is actually one of the crosses that missionaries have to bear, is that many other places don't make peanut butter, okay? And so it's hard to get a hold of. And so they liked peanut butter a lot, and so they would have people back home that were supporting them or praying for them send peanut butter to them, and they would enjoy peanut butter. Well, when the other missionaries got wind of this, they were offended. And they thought, well, since we are here and peanut butter is not available we shouldn't have peanut butter shipped in to us, but this should be something we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ and the cause of the gospel because this is, you know, where we're at. Well, the family understood that, and, but they nonetheless didn't see things that way, and so they didn't make an issue of it, but they continued to have people send them peanut butter, and they enjoyed their peanut butter. They didn't make an, you know, they didn't do it in front of the other people or flaunt it, but they enjoyed their peanut butter, all right? Well, as time went on, the other families, the other missionary families, began to shun them and treat them unfairly. Eventually, the family became so disillusioned by the pettiness of their colleagues that they returned to the States. And so we see, my friends, that not even among missionaries, not even among missionaries are they immune from the disease of legalism. One author described legalism in this way. Legalism has no pity on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden. Makes my opinion your boundary. Makes my opinion your obligation. You know, one of the things as we consider the religious leaders here and how they had formed all these rules and all these regulations and that sort of thing, I think one thing it's important for us to see as Christians is that we need to learn that we should not hold all our convictions and opinions with equal vigor Or zeal. That's important for us to learn as Christians. And sometimes that's hard for us to learn. I think it's helpful to think of our convictions and beliefs. Even as believers in terms of a theological triage. Now you know a triage is something that doctors do. You think specifically of an emergency room. Where someone comes in and they assess the situation. And they determine the significance of it. And then they list in order, the significance or the severity of the issues that they have to give attention to, and then they give attention to those issues which are most severe first, right? Well, we need kind of a theological triage, you might say. Uh, There are, as we think of theological issues or our own personal convictions, there are three, I think, helpful categories to think through these things. One are those matters that are essential. Second are those matters that are important. And third are those matters that are non-essential. So first of all, there are matters that are essential in terms of convictions and belief as it relates to Christians. So for example, we think of things like the divinity of Christ. That means that Jesus is God. Or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. That Jesus at the cross was our substitute and took our sin in our place so that we could be forgiven. Or um, we think about the return of Christ, that the Bible teaches that one day Jesus will return and he will rule and reign. Now, when you think of Christianity, all of these things are at the core, at the heart of Christianity, the message of the gospel. And those who disagree with us, we should disagree with them in love and show them grace and mercy. But at the same time, we can't surrender these truths because these are essential. You must affirm these things in order to meaningfully call yourself a Christian. There are other matters that we hold to, or convictions that we hold, that we would label important. They're not necessarily essential, but they are important for the life and health of a Christian or the life and health of a church. But they're not essential to be a Christian. In fact, we may see other Christians who disagree with us on these matters, and we can still have fellowship with them and recognize them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But we recognize, nonetheless, these matters are important. We think of things like baptism, or maybe um, church government, the way a church structures itself. There's a number of other things that we could mention as well that would fall under that category. And then the third category would be non-essentials. These are areas that we might say are um, fall under the area of Christian freedom. So, what version of the Bible you read out of might fall under this uh, area? Uh, How you choose to school your children, whether that's homeschool or private school or public school. Whether or not you drink alcohol. Whether or not you wear a suit or or a coat and tie when you come to worship services. Or whether you dress like you do throughout the rest of the week. These would be non-essentials. These would be matters that fall under Christian freedom. And so when we come to ideas, when we come to certain theological convictions or personal opinions, we need to go through that theological triage, right? Is this essential? Is this important? Or is this a non-essential? Now listen, my friends, when we don't make those distinctions between these three categories, and we hold all our convictions and opinions with equal tenacity and zeal, I think there's at least three dangerous results, and I'm just going to hit these quickly. The first dangerous result is a false pride. Legalism, and we see it here in our passage, right? And throughout the Gospels as we consider the religious leaders, legalism leads to self-justification and pride by those who hold to certain things and demand that others do likewise when they're not essentials. A second danger is false despair. And this is important to understand, false despair. I think sometimes when we fall into this trap of um, elevating non-essentials to essentials, we don't recognize that our legalism can discourage those who have a sensitive conscience. You see, there are some of us who are especially sensitive to our own moral or spiritual failings. And we struggle to live in the full acceptance and forgiveness that is ours in the gospel. And when we don't hold to convictions consistent with their importance, and we elevate non-essentials and demand it of others, do you see that oftentimes we undermine individuals' confidence in the full sufficiency of Christ's atoning death on their behalf? And they begin to feel, well, I kind of do like peanut butter. You know? Maybe there's something wrong with me spiritually. And so that's also a danger. The third danger is a false offense. A false offense. So a false pride, a false uh, despair, and then a false offense. Listen, when we we live like this, like the Pharisees are demonstrating here in this passage, when we live like this, we repel non-Christians. Why? Because, and I don't think we necessarily realize we do this sometimes as Christians, but sometimes Christians, whether intentionally or unintentionally, can communicate that, like for example, a Christian is someone who reads out of this particular version of the Bible, has their hair cut, you know, above the ear. Guys, keep your hair cut above the ear because we don't like long hair. And have a fish on the back of your car, right? That's not a Christian, okay? If, if you're here this morning and maybe you've been confused by Christians and thinking that that is a Christian, that's not a Christian, let me just tell you, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with necessarily any of those things. And if you want to do those things, that's fine and that's good. But, you know, non-Christians see that and if they equate that with what a Christian really is, they say, yeah, I don't really want to be a part of that. And I don't either, you know? But that's not what a Christian is. And that's where we have to be careful not to blur the line and confuse people about what the gospel really is. And we need to be careful in these distinctions, in our own minds, to have these distinctions, and then to communicate them to people to let them know what's really important, namely the gospel. And then what are those matters that, listen, we can disagree over, right? Do you understand This is remarkable when you consider this, that the religious leaders had the Messiah standing before them. He taught with all authority and all power. He healed and and did all kinds of miracles in their presence. And they missed the Messiah because they were concerned about the washing of hands. Do you see that? They didn't do theological triage very well, okay, to say the least. And as a result, they missed the Son of God. Now, the second thing I want us to see in our passage this morning is that Jesus honors the Word of God. Jesus honors the Word of God. Look there in verse 5, and we'll read through to verse 13. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, I said that the initial verses that we looked at address those who are religiously conservative. I think here in these verses, um, we, we can, through these verses, we can see that the religiously liberal or non-religious are addressed. Okay? So, so in the first point, we were looking at the, the religious leaders, and we saw how petty they were in terms of their own traditions. And some, in response to that, would say, yeah, that's right. That's the problem with religion, you know? That's the real problem with religion, like those Pharisees. Self-righteous people who think they're better than others and they want everybody else to keep their rules and regulations. That's why I don't believe everything in the Bible. Just believe that, you know, you have to believe in God, you have to be a good person and He'll accept you. That's what I believe. Now listen, Jesus shows us that that neither is the right way forward. Now consider this, the Pharisees were absolutely committed to their religious traditions. In fact, so committed to their religious traditions that they had raised them to the level of the authority of Scripture itself. So they, in, in essence, saw the Bible and their tradition on an equal plane. But in response, where does Jesus go? Okay, okay. Where does Jesus go? Here's a conflict over how one can be made right before God, how one can be made clean before God, and where does Jesus go? Does he say, well, you're just taking the Bible too seriously. That's your problem. No. He goes to the Scriptures. He goes to the Bible. And listen, if you, if you look at Jesus, if you read the Gospels and you consider Jesus' view of the Scriptures, it is breathtaking. Notice here in this passage, I want to to show you that first of all, in response to them, he cites Isaiah as an authoritative condemnation of their religiosity. Okay, So in verse 6, he says, Well did Isaiah, he's going to the Bible, right? Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now you've got to love Jesus, how courageous and bold he is, right? He just gets to the point, right? And then he cites Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he goes to the scriptures first. Then what does he do second? Second, he goes to the scriptures. He cites Moses over and against their tradition. So then he cites the fifth, or, or the, uh, yes, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And then Jesus contrasts that with their religious tradition, which was Corbin. They had created this category, which was Corbin, which was, meant gift or offering. And essentially, what it meant was that one could take their possessions and they could say, Okay, I commit this to Corbin. All right, this is a gift and offering, and it would be uh, devoted to the temple. So that when they die, whatever they have committed to the temple would then go to the religious authorities and go to the temple, right? But in order for them to be faithful to that commitment, the way things were structured, was that it had to remain in their possession until they died. So, their fathers and their mothers get older, right? Need help. What do they say? Sorry I can't help you. All my stuff's committed to Corbin. Right? The offering is committed to Corbin. It's committed to the temple. Can't help you out. What does Jesus say? You've created a religious tradition that undermines the very heart and essence of the command that God has given you to honor your father and your mother. Third, Jesus highlights the contrast between their tradition and God's word. So he points to Isaiah... Then he points to Moses, he's pointing them to the Bible, and then he highlights the contrast between their tradition and God's word by setting them in contrast on three specific occasions. Look there in verse 8, and he says, You leave the commandment of God, that is the Bible, right? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, You have a fine way of rejecting, here it is, the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, You make void the word of God by your tradition you have handed down. You see that? What Jesus is saying is not that... You see, the problem with you religious leaders is that you're too committed to the Bible. Rather, he says, by your rules and by your traditions, you don't honor the word of God, you distort it. The problem is not that you're committed to the Bible, but that you don't honor what the Bible really says. You see, there's two ways to dishonor God's word. One is the temptation of the religiously conservative, and that is to add to it. And the other is the temptation of the religiously liberal or non-religious, and that is to take away from it. I was talking to a guy this last week who came from a religious background in which uh, certain individuals that he really looked up to and admired uh, had placed an undue emphasis on certain religious traditions and non-essentials. And as a result, this guy I was talking to had a distorted view of Christianity. Uh, he had been told as he was growing up that um, someone had insisted that Jesus was born on December 25th, and if you didn't believe that, you were going to hell, okay? That is not not true, okay? <laughs> Let me just say that. So, so December 25th is a, a good time for us. It's a Christian tradition to recognize and remember Jesus' birth, but we don't believe that Jesus was necessarily born on that day. It's just a day that's been chosen that we honor and remember Jesus' birth and celebrate that. In fact, if you remember what Paul says, he says one man honors this day, another man honors this day. It doesn't matter, right? What matters is the gospel, right? That's That's an area of Christian freedom specifically stated by Paul. So, where's this guy at now? Well, as I probed a little bit more and found out what he believed, he said, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really trust the Bible. It's obvious that it's been distorted throughout time, and so I believe that whoever believes in a supreme being will go to heaven. That supreme being may be Jesus, it may be Allah, it may be whoever. It doesn't really matter. It just matters that you believe in a God and um, a supreme being, and then try to be a good person, and you'll go to heaven. And um, graciously, I tried to point out to him that that is not Christianity. That in fact, almost every page of Scripture speaks against that worldview. He may call it Christianity, but in fact, what he has done is constructed an entirely different religion that is inconsistent with Christianity or the Bible. Now, notice, what What is his response and many people's response to petty religious tradition? It is to replace it with another tradition, namely a secular tradition that denies the scripture and the veracity of Jesus and his words. Now listen, you may go there, but I just want you to understand that that's not where Jesus went. When the religious leaders confront him... And, and they are holding on to their traditions. Jesus, again, does not say your problem is with the Bible. As I said, if you read through the Gospels, mark, I encourage you, mark every time that Jesus makes a reference to the Scriptures. And you will see... That the scriptures govern what Jesus thinks about sin and suffering and joy and righteousness and the poor and the needy and family and temptation and money. And you can go on and on and on. Jesus reasoned and argued from the scriptures. Jesus submitted himself to the scriptures, even at great personal cost to himself. And when he was in the agony of suffering on the cross, what was it that came out of Jesus? Scripture. I mean, you think about when you're in the greatest agony of of suffering, what comes out of you in that moment is who you really are, right? Right? And what comes out of Jesus when he is in agony and suffering at the cross? He's citing the Psalms. He's just citing Bible. Jesus bled the Bible. And so listen, my friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you must go to the Scriptures. You must submit yourself to the Scriptures. You must embrace the view of the Scriptures that Jesus had. Jesus' response to petty religious tradition was not to reject the scriptures but to submit himself to them and as a result of submitting himself to the scriptures he points us to the true path of being made clean before God and this is our third and last point look there in verses 14 to 23 and he called the people to him again and said to them hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So, Jesus here we see, and this is actually what he's doing here is unpacking what Isaiah says, what he cited back in verse 6 about the reality that the issue, the issue is not your traditions, not your regulations, not your rules, but the issue is the heart. And so he appeals to the Scriptures to show the religious leaders that the issue in terms of their own religion is a matter of their heart and not their outward conformity to their laws of cleanliness. All of that, Jesus says, based upon the Scriptures, is superficial in comparison to the inner motivations and intentions of their hearts. As Isaiah the prophet says, "This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then he shows them that. And he talks about how, and it's kind of a, a coarse example, but food comes in, it goes out, right? It's expelled. It doesn't, it doesn't touch the heart. But what really matters is the heart. And so it doesn't matter the food you eat or how clean your hands are. But it matters the condition of your heart. Now having said this, Jesus points them to the reality, the true reality of religion and spirituality that it's a matter of the heart. Is this good news? Initially, it is not. Okay? Jesus points them to the reality that God is not looking at the outward performances and externality, or the external performances that you produce, right? He's not looking at that essentially, but He's looking at your heart. Now, is that good news? Initially, no. Because, as Jesus says in verses 21 and 22, from within, out of the heart of a man, comes what? Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. Theft, murder, adultery, you can go on. He says, all these things come from within and defile a person. And that is true of everyone. Because the unregenerate heart, the heart of a natural man, is desperately sick, Jesus teaches us. But listen, as we walk through the gospel and as we continue to study the life of Jesus, what we will see very clearly is that this is in fact the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came to address the deepest need that all of us have, namely the impurity of our own hearts. The Scriptures teach us that the washing requirement for the priest and the food laws of the Old Testament were only temporary in nature. The role that they played was that they were a sign or they were a symbol to the people that God is holy And that if they were to come before Him and know Him, then they too must be holy. They must have pure hearts. But what those laws could only symbolize and point to, Jesus came to make a reality. So for example, you notice here the food laws. There were these certain food laws in the Old Testament. And the Jews were to eat certain food, and other food they were not to eat because it was considered unclean. Again, this was to serve as a symbol and a sign that They were a set-apart people, that they ate that which was clean, and they were to be a clean people before God. Now, does Jesus say, well, you know, all those food laws in the Old Testament, Moses shouldn't have put those in there. Let's just cast those aside. Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, it says, from this point, right, that's the sense of the passage, from this point, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, how could he do that? Because, and we see this in so many other categories, what Jesus is saying here is that that which was symbolized, that which was pointed to by the food laws or the laws of cleanliness, I have come to fulfill. That was a symbol that you needed to be a clean and pure people before me. That you needed to be set apart. But I have come to make that a reality. I have come to do what those food laws and the laws of cleanliness could not do. I've come, in fact, to make your heart clean and to give you a new heart. And this is the promise of the gospel. Jesus gave His life at the cross, and we'll see this in the Gospel of Mark as we get to the end. Jesus gives His life at the cross as an atoning sacrifice, and His blood is shed. Why? So that our hearts could be washed clean and made pure before God. As Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify, make clean our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. And listen, not only is the promise of the gospel that Jesus came to make your heart clean, to wash it clean, but Jesus came in fact to give you a new heart. This is the promise of the gospel that God will rip out the heart of stone, the ugly, dark heart, and He will give you a new heart that longs to obey and please God. Ezekiel twenty-six thirty-six. the prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Jesus came, through Ezekiel the prophet, God promised, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will, get, or, or, I will remove the start of, heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then Paul picks this idea up in 2 Corinthians five seventeen when he says, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus fulfills the scripture. He fulfills these symbols by making them a reality. By doing what they could not do. By cleansing our hearts and giving us a new heart. You see, what Jesus is trying to teach us here in this passage is that working from the outside in doesn't work. Right? So I'm going to wash my hands, I'm going to eat the right food, I'm going to do all these rules and regulations, and I'll be clean on the inside. Jesus says, no, that doesn't work. And listen, the religiously conservative do this and the religiously liberal or non-religious do this, just in different ways. They set up their own external rules or systems of morality and then they seek to attain them and then they declare themselves righteous. But the Bible tells us that God is concerned with the heart. And Jesus came to do what we cannot do. Jesus came to purify and change our hearts. Listen my friends, everything else, everything else the Bible teaches us is empty religion. Do you see that? Either either you're religiously conservative and you're moving in this way and keeping the rules or you're religiously liberal and you set your own moral system and code up and you're meeting that and you declare yourself justified. These are the two paths that everyone's taking. The gospel is a totally different path. The gospel says... No, you can't make yourself clean and pure. But Jesus has come to do what you cannot do. Trust Him. Trust Him. Let's pray.